welcome to Stempunk. My name's Tom, and we're going to be interviewing a wonderful human today. Wonderful human, please tell us who you are. Hi, my name is Vanessa Moss. I am a telescope scientist that is currently based at Astron in the Netherlands, and I work on a combination of support and research as part of that role. So can you, uh, welcome, hi, by the way. So can you uh, unpack that a bit? What do you mean by support and research? Uh, so I was previously based here in Sydney uh, as an astronomer. So I was doing astronomy research in a lot of different areas. Uh, but what I realized as part of that was that I really enjoy working with telescopes. So the process of, you know, kind of operating a telescope, visualizing data, trying to analyze the data from a telescope and that kind of technical skill that you develop as part of support and operations. Uh, and so when this job came up, which was a combination of both the research that I really enjoy, but also getting that hands-on experience with a telescope, it seemed like a really good fit for the things I like doing. So do you fix telescopes when they go wrong? Or? Sometimes, yeah. Um, oh, cool. So my, my group is officially called Science Operations and Support. Uh, we are under the umbrella of the Radio Observatory in our institute. Uh, we work with actually a lot of different departments. So it's not just us. It's also our software group, our hardware group and maintenance. Uh, and we collaborate with um, people all over Europe to make the make one of our telescopes keep working uh, but yeah we're kind of like the first line of defense so when users have questions about making observations or if things go wrong we have to know who to contact and how to support that uh, what's what's the telescope uh, so I work with two telescopes at the moment one is LOFAR which stands for low frequency array it's a, so it's, it's like L little o or big O F. Anyway, it's low far. Uh, <laughs> it is a, a telescope made up of about 8,000 antennas uh, split up into 51 stations. Most of them are in the Netherlands. We call that the, the, the Dutch side, and that's about 38 stations. Uh, and then we have stations all the way from Ireland to Poland. Uh, there's 13 international stations, but we're currently expanding, so we expect to see a new station in Latvia in the not-too-distant future and Italy as well. And that's one of the telescopes. What's yep. the other one? The other telescope is, uh, it's actually, it has a cousin here in Australia. I don't know if it's come up in your podcast before, but it's called the Australia Telescope Compact Array. Yes. Uh, and ATCA is six dishes in a row, uh, an interferometer. The telescope I work with in the Netherlands is 14 dishes. Uh, we're using 12 of them and we're currently upgrading it to have a much bigger view on the sky than it previously has. And that one's called Apatif. Apatif. Yep. That's lovely. <laughs> it's very hard to Google because Google thinks you want aperitif. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I want uh, world-leading astronomy research, not a pre-dinner drink, please. Yeah. Well, actually, our pre-servers are called appetizer, I think. So <laughs> there's a bit of a theme going on. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have questions about both of those. Mm -hmm. So with your the work you do with LOFA... It's all around the place. Do you travel heaps to those places to solve problems? Uh, personally, I don't at the moment. There are people um, that are part of our support group, especially in the maintenance, that do have to go to the other stations, for example, Ireland, which only came online last year. Um, so I, I haven't had to travel like to help out with the stations. We mostly communicate them with them from our base in the Netherlands. Uh, but as you know, as part of the research and part of promoting LOFAR, we do get to travel a lot, which is obviously one of the huge perks of being in academia. Um, so one of the first things I started around this time last year, actually, tomorrow will be my anniversary of a year in the Netherlands, mm. <laughs> but I'll be in Australia. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, like within a couple of weeks of starting, we had a big low frequency conference in Italy. Uh, and so that was one of the first things I did was go to this conference and get up to speed with what all the different scientists are doing using LOFAR and other telescopes uh, and help like answer questions about using it. So what, uh, okay, um, I'm just going to back up the questions in my mind because you, you keep making me have more ones. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Um, how, with the, the other telescope, the mm -hmm. Apatif, Apatif, yep. did I yep. say that Apatif, right? Okay, right. great. Um, how do you, if it's like 12 telescopes or mm -hmm. 14 in a row and you can't really make them go further apart for mm -hmm. the interferometry, how do you make them 
better? Like what is, you said you're about to upgrade them. Like what yeah. does that look like? So that's a couple of things. I mean, so they're not, most of them are stationary, but a couple of them we do have the ability to move a small amount. Um, with an interferometer, you're basically trying to pretend you have a bigger telescope, but you don't want to build that telescope because it would be several kilometers across and that can't move, you can't do a lot with it. So you break it up into smaller pieces and those smaller pieces can each track the sky and if you combine them in the right way it sort of acts like a bigger telescope the caveat is you you only sample the structures on the sky that are on the same scales as the distance between your telescopes so what we want with that kind of interferometer is a lot of different distances so they're actually placed at different parts so we have all the baselines between them uh, there are redundant baselines which means they have the same distance and we can use that for checking uh, and we the, it's um, specifically designed to be east-west. The reason for that is because as the Earth rotates, you then your interferometer moves around and you can start to trace the whole sky. So there are limitations of these kind of telescopes, but they actually do a really good job if you, if you can integrate for 12 hours as the Earth rotates around you. Uh, the upgrade that we're doing is telescopes traditionally have had a very small view on the sky. Um, the bigger your telescope, the smaller its window on the sky is because your resolution goes up with the size of the telescope. But what we really want to do is be able to see the most sky at once. And so with new technology, so here in Australia, uh, CSIRO is building ASCAP, which is the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. Uh, there's something called a phased array feed. And this takes our, kind of like if you think of it as a single pixel view of the sky, making it you know, five by five degrees instead of a very small amount of that. So you can see a huge amount of the sky at once. And we're doing the same with Apertif, also with phased array feeds. So this new kind of receiver technology means that we can see something like four by four degrees on the sky instantaneously. Okay, so there's uh, the upgrade is probably mostly in the receiver yep. and software. Yes, yeah. So with this kind of technology, because it's so new, we have to understand how the electronics works, how you make beams electronically on this receiver, uh, and also the back end's all changing, and we have a new correlator and stuff. So there's a lot of different things changing, but the main, I guess, technological advantage is this big field of view. What's the difference between if you were to add, like if you were to do that to all the telescopes that you have in the, the interferometer, for example, that upgrade is that better is that better of an upgrade uh, yeah so it's a huge uh because with adding another dish you get more sensitivity mm -hmm. so you can see fainter things but you can still only see that same small amount of the sky cool. so for example one of the things we do a lot in astronomy now is we're interested in variability so how things change and the more of the sky you can see at once, the more you can see the chance you have of something changing uh -huh. it also means that if you want to do a survey of the whole sky like what used to take maybe a couple of hundred individual pointings can now be done in one go. Sure. So you can do a survey much faster. Uh, I, um, I've heard a couple of examples of science having to do it, do science that way rather than completely replacing yep. the infrastructure that you have to work with what you've got. I kind of like that. I heard a story of, uh, it was from here, one of our optics people, they were saying, if we do nothing, with uh, optic fibers across the world, we will run out of bandwidth in the next couple of years. Right. So we've got to think of new ways to use the existing bandwidth. And that's where cool science happens because yeah, you've yeah. got to think of ways to use what you've got. I think that's cool. That's sort of, that reminds me of what you're doing. Um, so my next question, uh, what is some cool results that you get from either of those telescopes? So you said you went to a conference. What was one of the cool things that you heard? Yeah, about I think one of the really the cool things is that um, LOFAR, so it operates at very low frequency. Uh, and that means that's a part of the sky that we haven't really explored very well because it's hard to build good low frequency instruments. So one of the things that's really stood out to me when I look at the kind of results that are getting published is you know, the, with that much sensitivity, with all of these stations across Europe, you start to see that what you thought was this size galaxy is actually really, really big. Its radio emission might be like 100 megaparsecs. So they're discovering a lot of really, really big galaxies and trying to understand how they relate to their environment. I think that's super cool. Um, the other thing that's really cool about LOFAR is because we have these huge baselines, so we have, you know, a station in Ireland talking to a station in Poland, that means, you know, that's thousands of kilometers. It means that you can actually resolve very small detail 
So you start to get into the realm of very high resolution, low frequency astronomy. Uh, and if you combine that with the faint structure, you, you can see all kinds of really cool things and bring them together. Uh, so I think that's really cool from LOFAR. Uh, from the Apertif side, we're still very much in commissioning. So we're still kind of like building the telescope. Um, but it's going to be really exciting to see, I guess, what kind of possibilities this new technology opens. Uh, Apertif, which is on the Westerbork telescope, is right in, you know, a fairly inhabited part of the Netherlands. Actually, everywhere is pretty inhabited in the Netherlands. Mm. So it's not a radio quiet zone. But with these kind of receivers, there's opportunities to look at, for example, what we call nulling, where you can say, okay, there's RFI from this radio tower six kilometers away i see that as part of my receiver maybe i can blank that part and mm -hmm. still get all the sky mm -hmm. um so i think with apertif it's going to be what does this new technology offer us and what kind of cool things can we do that we couldn't do before with the single pixels cool that's fun that must be fun yeah, yeah. to work with something that you're literally building it yeah yeah i mean well so most of it's built it's mostly like the hardware and the software and getting it all to work together yeah like, like um, but, but, but yeah yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's coming That's online cool. which is really neat and there's always so many things to do for apertif like from you know like scheduling to looking at the data trying to find new ways of visualizing it because it's different to the kind of data we've worked with before we don't just have one position on the sky we have what we call beams and we have 37 beams on the sky so we want to know how are those beams performing what do the what does the data tell us and so i've been doing a lot of work with developing diagnostics specifically visualizations to get an insight into that it's been really fun <laughs> do you de uh, do you deal with uh probably not but telescope time like do you have to deal with giving people time on the telescope um my group does at the moment i'm not involved with that process okay. for lofar uh, and apertif is it's kind of like going to do this set amount of surveys similar to what ascap will do mm. so that's being decided at a higher level what time goes to which surveys it's not like an open telescope yet anyway uh, but for example i am like the main scheduler for apertif at the moment so yeah, i'm nice. responsible i work with um the head of science betsy and she you know she has an idea of the targets that the science team wants to observe and we work together to figure out the best schedule and then i make sure that it can all fit in the right time so you must be part of those science team meetings, right? Yeah, yeah. Lots oh of meetings. Man. They're really fun. Be fun. <laughs> There's lots going on all the time. Um, so what is, uh, you may have covered it, but what is your research? You said you do support and research, mm -hmm. but what do you research with those telescopes? Well, actually, I guess because I've been tied to Australia for so long, a lot of my primary research is still linked to Australia teles Australian telescopes, which is part of the reason why I'm back here. Sure. Um, so I spend my research time in two main topics. One is the, the Milky Way, so our home galaxy. Uh, and I study, I guess the theme across both of them is gas. Uh, so gas in the form of neutral hydrogen, which is our fuel for forming stars. Where we can trace it, we can understand what the fate of a galaxy is, how it's evolving, where it's going. Uh, and so in the Milky Way case, what we're really interested in is, I guess, trying to understand the environment around the Milky Way. The halo is a very faint, diffuse place compared to the disk where there's a lot going on. Uh, but one of our results from last year showed that actually there might be a lot more gas in the Milky Way halo than we previously thought, mm -hmm. which means that we go closer to better understanding how star formation takes place in our galaxy. Because if there's a lot of cold neutral gas in the halo, then maybe it can make its way to the disk and then we get stars. So that's one project. And I'm using mostly the Parkes radio telescope to answer those questions. Uh, with a big survey and then the other project is looking at the same kind of gas but in galaxies that are billions of light years away uh, and in that case we look at it in absorption not emission um, because it's too faint to be seen in emission so yes but this absorption usually we see it towards either central black holes or the hot spots of these radio these big radio galaxies and in that case it's telling us that there's some neutral gas surviving in the environment close to a black hole. So it's having an impact on maybe the fueling of that black hole or the black hole is pushing all of the gas out of the galaxy. So we're trying to understand how that all fits together and what it tells us about those galaxies far away. Uh, and that's with ASCAP mostly. I love the idea that we still don't know these, these questions. We still don't know the answers. Like what's, what's our galaxy made of? I don't know. <laughs> oh, we've got a pretty good idea, but you, just the fact that we you can look somewhere and find 
hydrogen and that helps understand how much there is of it. I, I just think that's cool. I love that we... I like to play a game called Confuse a Scientist where <laughs> okay. you ask them fundamental questions we have no idea about, like what is mass? Like You can ask a question, what is mass? And, and uh, we don't really know what it is. Um, we've got a good idea, but you know, it's, it's, everyone gives a different answer and you can say the same. What is, what is our galaxy made of? And you get a different answer every time. I love it. Anyway, that's just me. Um, uh, Netherlands, uh, you've been there for a year, right? Mm -hmm. How's the Netherlands? I really like it. I have been surprised at, you know, you think when you go to a country overseas that maybe, you know, you, you'd miss a lot about Australia, maybe the culture is very different and it's hard, but actually, I don't know if there's maybe like a similar cultural attitude, but fitting into the Netherlands has been really good. People have been super friendly. I mean, it helps that everyone speaks very, very good English. Yeah, sure. I, I actually think it's probably, if not the best, but one of the best countries in the world where, you know, the native language is Dutch, but perfect English everywhere. Like you can sure. get around really easily. I remember traveling through Germany once and we were lost and we asked, you know, a local where to go but we didn't have any German so we just said do you speak English and they said oh a little bit and then went on to explain how to get there in perfect prose it was just it was gorgeous language I was like okay cool <laughs> a little bit great <laughs> yeah no it's really impressive um, I mean I guess in Europe as well you find that most people will speak at least like a few languages sure. and that's super cool because you know I don't even know how much command of the English language I honestly have <laughs> <laughs> so speaking multiple languages is amazing um, I have this idea in my head that in the Netherlands it's just full of astronomers. Okay. Why? <laughs> because of, you know, the University of Leiden and yeah, yeah. like there's just a couple of, like it's got a big astronomy group there. Just everyone I know that's in Netherlands is an astronomer. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, I think it does have a very good history, especially of radio astronomy. Discoveries were first made and where like the, the communities grew so much. It was places like Australia, the US the UK and the Netherlands. Um, and I think, yeah, despite it has a population of around maybe 17, 18 million. So it is smaller than Australia, but there is a very high density of very cool astronomers. Um, mm. And there's a lot of institutes. Like the one I'm based at is Astron. That's a radio astronomy institute, but there's a lot of universities like Leiden, Nijmegen, Groningen, uh, Amsterdam. Mm. Like, and yeah, I haven't made it to all of them yet, but. Yeah, hopefully. sure. <laughs> Have you given talks at most of them, right? Um. That's a good point, actually. No, I haven't. It's been so crazy, I guess, mm -hmm. getting settled and getting up to speed with LOFAR. Um, and most of the talks I've given have been at, like, you know, more specific conferences to my field. Sure, sure. Uh, but I actually... So one of the cool things about Astron is that we have one day a week where we can either work from home or work from any other institute we want. Uh, and so what I do is I go mostly to Captain, which is the institute at the University of Groningen. Um, and yeah, I just kind of hang out there and talk to the H1 group there, um, sometimes about aperitif commissioning and things like that. And that's been really fun. Yeah, right. That's a lovely way of doing it. Um, do you, are you picking up Dutch? Um, I think like the, in so I, I learned some German for a while mm -hmm. and there are, if you look at the Dutch language, it's actually kind of an interesting mix of there's English elements in there. There's a lot of German elements, so similar words, similar grammar structure. There's a bit of French randomly. Um, and so, you know, even going in with just your English knowledge, you can kind of start to puzzle things out like menus. So you always feel like you have some of the puzzles, but not some of the puzzle pieces, but not the whole mm. puzzle. And it's like, it's kind of fun to try and solve that. Um, most of my, I guess, Dutch that I've heard and had like tried to process and things. Sometimes you get it from stores and things and you can m make it through a conversation or like, I, I, I was very proud actually, cause I got, I've been getting through entire Dutch conversations when I fuel up my car. Cause it's literally, you just say the number of the, the <laughs> petrol tank and then you say goodnight and stuff like that. So that, that's fine. Uh, but actually, yeah. So I play for a basketball team in cool. the Netherlands and uh, almost everyone is Dutch on the team, so the the default conversation might be in Dutch. Or the chats that we have organizing training, things like that, are all Dutch. So that's actually been a really good way to practice. Sometimes I still use Google Translate, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. I mean, it must be hard. You you work in a place that everyone speaks English. Yeah. You work in a country where everyone speaks English. Yeah. And yes, I would find that difficult. Yeah, it's it's also because like depending on where you go. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, it's not necessarily the case everywhere, but at Astron, the official language is English. Yeah. So all the communication internally is in English. Um, but yeah, a lot of people struggle, like if they 
go to a store and they want to have a Dutch conversation, sometimes people will detect, oh, you know, they're struggling with the Dutch pronunciation and switch to English to yeah. be helpful. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, like maybe you don't want that. Uh, so I've actually had a really good experience. Like if I just speak Dutch, very basic stuff at a supermarket and things, mostly people stay in Dutch. So that's been good. <laughs> so you mentioned something that uh, that's very cool. Like you, you play basketball and all your conversations about training and stuff are in Dutch. That's a, probably a great way to get into it. Go to the store, buy things, like purposely speak Dutch, play basketball, speak Dutch. In <laughs> that must be cool. Yeah, I mean, so actually I owe a lot to particular people on my team. So shout out to Rikia if she ever listens to this. Because <laughs> she's actually been one of the people that's like, you know, you need to speak some Dutch and she wants to like teach me words and things like that. So, um, you know, being pushed out of your comfort zone to actually pronounce things and try to construct sentences sometimes. I haven't done a great job of it, but, you know, it's it's been good to be exposed. I'd like to be, you know get better at Dutch and hopefully maybe in the future do a Dutch course it just hasn't the timing hasn't worked out so far so is it just social basketball that you play or in competition uh it's a competition it was actually at a very high level um so we the team I was playing for last season uh we would train twice a week huh. for an hour and a half and then we would play anywhere across the northern Netherlands uh down as far as south as a place called Urk which is pretty close to Amsterdam, actually. Sure. So, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. Um, having gone from teams where, you know, we the last team I played for in Australia, we weren't training, we were just playing, like, twice a week. But, um, yeah, it was really great. My fitness went up. But yeah. after, like, a period of where I was nearly dying in every training, because I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, so much running. Um, but, yeah, it's been really good. It's like, you know, in... In research, you tend to do a lot of sitting behind a computer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe you walk down the hall to talk to someone, but there's not a lot of physical activity involved. Yeah, so sure. having something where you do have that is really good. I'm, I'm only asking because um, I have started to play basketball again oh, nice. after, after you know, many years of not, because I used to play at high school, at university, uh, then life gets in the way. Um, but I was saying to my seven-year-old son, like when because he wants to play basketball, he's too young though. So when you play basketball, when you're like nine, I'll join a team and I'll play basketball too. <laughs> and then I just thought, well, why don't I start now? So I just started um, again. I'm very unfit. <laughs> we yeah. played our first game. And in minute four, I looked at the, I looked at the clock and I was like, oh my God, there's another two halves to go essentially i'm gone like, i'm done yeah it's really good for fitness basketball <laughs> is the superior sport so for basketball <laughs> all right so how do you how do you say uh three points in, in dutch uh three punta i think but i don't there often have to like, I, I don't know actually we use i'm trying to think in training because obviously the training would switch between sometimes english sometimes dutch um, and so, yeah, I don't know, I guess, I think maybe a lot of the words we use to describe plays and things like that would still be in English, but yeah. I guess there's not that much, like, perfect grammar in a bas on a basketball court. No, You're not really not. making full sentences, just sounds, basically, or yes. <laughs> yeah, and, um, Pass. we, well, certainly, like, I learned to count, thanks to training, because, yeah, yeah. you know, we do drills where we'd go up to 50, and like, yeah, oh, yeah. I can count in Dutch now, <laughs> but it's very confusing, because, like, certain words sound like English and certain words sound like German uh, but different and so for example five in English fünf in German and five in Dutch so ah. it's like this weird mix between all of them like, yeah, yeah right so it's, it's been interesting to see the connections between the languages I, I started doing I'm sure you've heard of Duolingo yep that's an app that helps you learn a language I don't like really I don't know about that but um, I started to do that with Dutch just Oh, really? Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Um, years ago, so I forget everything. But it was very funny. The examples they use are oh, very, very yes. funny. Yeah, and they stick with you. Like one of the sentences that, because I started doing it a little bit at the start, was like, you know, ich bin an apple. Like, I'm an apple. Or, sap, <laughs> like, morning to your juice. It's very strange. But it is, rem like, it is memorable. So, yeah, I actually haven't, I don't know, I haven't done Duolingo for a long time. Because, you know, you get those streaks and then you stop. Yeah, and then yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> and there was a lot of I can't like Monty Python references. Oh really? A lot of Monty okay. Python references. I must not have got to that section. It was mostly talking to your food and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do remember that. Good morning, juice. Yeah, <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> when will you ever use that? Well, I guess that's the no, point. it's funny actually because I had so my Dutch office mate here, yes sir. He was like, you know, I was like, ich bin an apple. And he's like, you're never going to use that, you know. And I'm like, I am. And actually, within the first week of being there, I found this gigantic... I was going to dress up as an apple for Halloween, but I found this gigantic statue of an apple next to a store. So I stood behind it and I, I was an apple. 
it came in useful. <laughs> but I heard that as well. Duolingo gets uh, words from the internet, and then you translate them, and you write down, you know, on the app what the translation is, and it helps to go and translate those pages. Huh, okay. So I it's like a, right. but yeah, it's like when you have Google Translate, for example, it gets that information from somewhere, and right. I heard that one of the places it gets them from is these translation apps where people That's translate. Cool. But, and over time, you just get this build-up of yeah, yeah, page like translations. Galaxies do, but for language. Yeah, 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 yeah. I could ask you more about it. But I have a question that uh-huh. we ask everyone, and you're prepared, so you... <laughs> <laughs> yep. As prepared as I am. So the question I have for you is, and we ask this to everybody, mm-hmm. what does STEM mean to you? Um, so, I mean, I'm sure people have already gone through what the actual letters stand for. Mm-hmm. So science, technology, engineering, math. Uh, I think, like, as a broader view, you know, when I was here and also in the Netherlands, I was doing a lot of outreach and psychom and talking to people. And what I realized over time, like, if I look back at what I've gotten most out of doing STEM subjects, it's more like just being curious about the universe, exploring the universe, having the tools and like the logic and the critical thinking to solve problems. Uh, And that can be anywhere from, you know, like where is the optimal place to sit in a 3D theater for the best 3D experience? Or, you know, like, oh, my picnic's gonna be on this day. Statistically, what's the weather likely to be? Those kind of questions, you know, it just gives you the power to, you know, explore your universe around you and make informed decisions based on scientific data. So I think STEM to me is just being able to think about the world in a way that's driven by data. I really, over time, I've realized that one of the things I enjoy most about astronomy, which applies to science in general, is data. You know, what data is our, you know, it's the closest we have to the world around us measured. And so from that data, we can say, we can answer questions, we can learn about the universe we can learn about the future of earth we can learn about what our society is doing as a whole and i think that's really powerful so i think it's just stem a stem education and a stem training gives you the tools you need to make sense of all the data that's going on around us in a cool way that's that's no one's given an answer like that before that's very cool yeah (laughs) i like that we get a lot of uh you know it's a way to figure out the world around us but Mm. you've 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 placed it in the context of data and we've always had data and even now we're just going to have more and more and more yeah yeah i think like especially because technology is so prevalent now there's just so much data going on everywhere you Uh think about your footprint on the world that you leave through the websites you visit and the social media you use there's so much information out there And I think that's one of the ways astronomy, but also science in general, because we're so used to dealing with data, um, we can really contribute to that kind of interpretation. It's like a key way that we like interact with industry through data science and making Mm -hmm. sense of all the data. So yeah, I I really like data, it's cool. Are there, okay, two quick, many questions, (laughs) but two. Are there um, uh, data processing problems that you're gonna have with the, the couple of telescopes that I mean, I know with ASCAP, that's going to be a huge problem. It's already, SPA, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, definitely. I think uh, everyone kind of talks about this whole big data thing, but when you get down to it, astronomy is really paving the way in terms oh. of like these big data challenges, uh, and especially radio astronomy. I think LOFAR is a very good example of what the eventual square kilometer array will look like and need to do, because when we have data, we have like many terabytes coming in from all of our stations Uh, and even just to process it we already need to do things like time binning and frequency averaging and stuff just to make that data processable by Mm -hmm. our current supercomputers even though they're super advanced as well and then to store it we have to do processing and things like that Uh, and so one of the things the challenges is at the moment we're getting so much data and we don't necessarily have enough computing processing to deal with it and even if we have the processing do we have the storage because you know the process of analyzing data creates more data mm-hmm. <laughs> so then you're like oh i had enough to store the data but now i've doubled that mm-hmm. um and so that's you know that's a challenge i'm seeing in all the telescopes i'm working with uh you know ascap is having that apatif we have a cluster dedicated to our data we also have a long like an, a long-term archive but for our processing it's on this specific cluster and that's close to full a lot of the time so we need to figure out 
how do we do this because our traditional way of like downloading data to our computers doesn't work in this new environment we have to do more of people talk about bringing your code to the data so being able to process it on the supercomputer uh, thinking cleverly about ways to reduce the data sizes but yeah it's super challenging are there i've heard of people trying to figure out how to do uh, onboard processing Mm-hmm. So uh, before, because I was thinking about it, if you if you collect data and then put it somewhere and then process it, like mm-hmm. you said, you've yeah. you not only you've got data, but then you've added more by the processing. Can you? Is there a way that people are, you know, giving the data to? I'm using hand gestures. That doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> giving data to the storage when it's already been processed, processed like before it even gets to storage. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things. Certainly, they talk about with the with the SKA that they have to do real time processing. Yeah. Uh, it's also something they talk about with ASCAP. Um, but you know, it's it's very difficult because you need to know okay, what's the best way to process this data going in? And that can vary, you know, it can depend on the RFI environment. So if there's interference, if maybe the hardware's behaving in a strange way, it's very difficult in practice to apply one set of parameters to every data set. So you have to have very clever algorithms doing that. Uh, But then the other side, which is one of the things that I know people are thinking about a lot is it requires making assumptions about Mm. what the data is going to look like. And so you run the risk of missing the serendipitous discoveries. Sure. Like if you yeah. say, this is what my day is going to look like, I'll throw out everything else, then you could throw out something really cool. And how many discoveries have made have been made from people going back to raw data? To yeah, say, well, something well, like, I mean, you could probably talk to Ray Norris about this, but like something like half, I think, of all the big discoveries made with some of the biggest telescopes weren't the things that they were funded for or yeah. predicted. So there's a lot of stuff that just happens because people use it in an interesting way yeah. or... You know, pulsars were discovered because they really, really cared about the details of the noise and understanding the instrument. If the instrument's so complex and distributed over so wide an area, then how closely can you look at how it works? Yeah. So it's really, it's a, it's a big challenge. Or the other one I like is the cosmic microwave background was discovered because it wasn't p- pigeon poo. poo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. So, um... I mean, that's that's one of the things that science is very good at. It's figuring out, okay, there's this thing, it's weird. What are the things, all the things it could be that are not the weirdest thing? So it's like ruling out all the other things like bird poo uh, <laughs> and then you, you end up at a conclusion. But yeah, in this environment of all this data, we have to be a lot more clever. So there are, there are things like machine learning going into it, whether we can, say, give our data sets to a machine learner that can see patterns a lot faster than a human can, identify outliers, things like that. Um, but yeah, astronomy will probably change a lot in the next 10 years. Which is exciting. Yeah. Because <laughs> astronomy has already changed a lot in the yep. last 10 years. Exactly. <laughs> um, is there, do you, can you think of an example where you have been presented with data that has changed your mind. Like, I love the idea that we we make decisions using data. And I totally agree with you that that's what data's for. You Mm -hmm. make predictions or decisions or something. Has there been an example where, either in research or not, where you've looked at some data with this idea of your mind? Yeah, so I think um, in the case of our project with Parks, that actually came from a case like that because I was visiting a collaborator based in Green Bank um, and... We, we had the results from a catalogue of clouds that we'd made of our Milky Way. And this was based on a shallow-ish all-sky survey of the southern sky. Uh, and so we had these results. And when I visited him, he was like, oh, well, I did a very deep sightline survey looking at faint patches of the Milky Way. How does your catalogue compare to that? And I was like, I don't know. They probably overlap pretty well. Let's see. Yeah. So from that question of how they compare, we made a plot that showed uh, like the density of the gas, the column density versus either the brightness or the line width of it. And that plot was what actually showed these two populations of H1 that we're now following up. Cause uh-huh. we didn't expect to see anything other than like a big blob in the center, maybe like a bit of a shape to it. But the fact that we saw one blob which covered most of the bright stuff and then this little branch going down towards fainter and fainter gas that was something we didn't expect to see at all. So it, you know, it, it brings up all these new questions like what is this branch? How does it relate? What's the structure of the halo? Uh, and then you go further and further down this track to try and understand it better. Is it significant, the amount of H1 there is? That well, that's what we're trying to figure out. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, on a, on a limited data set like the one we had, there's only so far we could take it. So we said, you know, maybe there's three times as much, maybe there's 
one times as much, but we don't know for sure. One of the things we actually are trying to understand is um, if you think about these these cold clouds of gas sitting, the halo is actually very hot, maybe like a million degrees Kelvin. Mm -hmm. So there are these cold clumps of gas sitting in a hot halo. It's hard for them to survive and things tend to evaporate and stuff like that. So you expect these cold clumps to be surrounded maybe by a warmer halo. And we think that's what we're detecting. Um, we're detecting this kind of like fainter, more diffuse bubble around the clouds. Uh, but maybe this also links to, there's a lot of ionized gas out there. Uh, and if you talk to the ionized gas community, they say, well, there's enough ionized gas to solve all of our star formation problems, but you can't make stars out of ionized gas. It needs to be cold and neutral. So the question is, are we seeing how this ionization transitions into cold gas? Um, and so, yeah, it's lots of questions still yeah. <laughs> to well, try and figure out what's that's going good. on. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to ask you my next question, mm -hmm. which um, when, when Ben asked me this, I had a stab at uh, answering it. I don't know how I did. <laughs> oh, what did you say? Um, I said... Well, I'll ask a question yeah. and then I'll say, okay, so ignoring funding, if mm -hmm. you if someone gave you $10 million now, what would you do with it? So every episode, our previous guest asked a question for our next guest and that was Ben Newsom. Mm -hmm. He asked that. Ignoring funding, if someone gave you $10 million now, what would you do with it? So my answer was I would, you know, invest it. Invest most of it, in yeah. fact, probably three quarters of it, just to have this perpetual fund to keep going. So it's not just $10 million. Right, you it's, live off It's the always like you just get more and more and more. Yep. And the rest would go to funding cool science projects. Like yep. I'd, um, there's a cool um, science museum kind of thing that they've just built in Adelaide mm -hmm. called uh, MOD, Museum of Design. I think it's called MOD. Okay, cool. Very cool, like very cool. And I would build <laughs> something like that. Right. That's what I'd do. Nice. Anyway, that's my answer. Yeah. So what's your answer? Yeah, it's really tricky. Um, I was I was thinking a little bit about this and I think, I mean, one of the challenges I think we face probably in lots of scientific research, but I see it personally in astronomy, is that we have a like technical skills are like a huge part of what we do. We spend a lot of time programming and coding and things. And so I think one of the things I would do, we see a lot where in astronomy, we struggle to hold on to those technically minded people because our like the environment, the funding cycles, the way fellowships and postdocs are awarded, it's often just based on your research output. But if you spend a lot of time, say, trying to build a database or trying to do these kind of things, they don't necessarily hire you to do that. So then it's hard to get your next job. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking like one of the I would probably not use all of it, but some of it could maybe be used to have a a funding agency or something that could help extend people's postdocs. One of the other challenges of research postdocs is that they're very short. They're often two or three years. So in that time, how much can you achieve? And mm -hmm. are you close to finishing something if you had like a little bit more funding? So having like a, a way of, I guess, specifically funding technical projects that people have started to develop while they're based in this one research position and extending that for like a year so that they could complete this or two years. But the other thing I was thinking about was, because um, I mentioned, you know, industry linkage and things like that. Even though there's a lot of potential for it and it's actually a place that a lot of our like researchers in science go if they don't continue in academia itself, there's not a lot of very like clear, tangible links. So I think the other thing it would be really cool to use that kind of money for is to actually put it into setting up the possibility of internships at the postdoc level where you kind of like collaborate with these companies. Maybe some of the funding comes from that fund and the other comes from the company itself. And you can like hire out postdocs who would again all be on this short-term contract. Maybe through this process they get an extra year and that year gives them industry experience. So mm -hmm. they're actually applying their skills that they're developing through their research part into an industry situation. And I think that also helps solve the problem of, you know, when you if you're a postdoc and then you're, you're looking into getting into some sort of industry afterwards, a lot of the feedback I've heard from people is, well, what, what industry experience do you have? Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's really hard to get that experience if you don't have that, you know, if everyone's saying, where's your industry experience? So I think that would be really cool. Um, and that would be a nice way to kind of like bridge more of the gap between academia and industry. Certain parts of research do it very well. Um, but astronomy in particular, I think we could improve a lot. So that would be really neat. Um, I've heard that engineering yeah. does that quite well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in some ways, maybe you think about, okay, it's more applicable, like engineering, you can help build something. But I think really like the data science skills that we're developing in science right now 
are really useful for that. And um, I was in Canberra last week and I saw a talk by Brian Schmidt about, it was actually a really cool talk. He, he, the focus was what is success and what defines success. And one of the things... He'd know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. It's yeah. hard to measure and we always want to quantify things. But um, one of the points he made was that actually the structure of research in universities and stuff has changed a lot because it used to be that very a small amount of people were university educated. An even smaller amount might go on to research and an even smaller amount would do a PhD. So suddenly you have this huge amount of people doing PhDs. You're producing a lot more trained in science people than you used to but the permanent jobs aren't rising they can't rise at the same rate to meet that Mm -hmm. so you need to think of much more clever ways where do you where do these people with these awesome skills go that's useful to also to society if they don't stay in their specific research field Um, so yeah so i think funding like more technical stuff in astronomy funding some like industry linkage would be a really cool use but yeah tricky <laughs> yeah it's tricky <laughs> it'd be a lovely problem to have like, yeah <laughs> i'd love someone to test it out on me <laughs> yeah um i reckon that some industries probably do that better than than academia like i i see that problem where people stick around for two or three years on a project and then that project ends the funding ends and it just stops yeah and that's really sad because they've obviously been given they've, they've been trusted to do a project and they do it well because they're you know academics and they do they do things well and then it just stops the example i'm thinking of is amps which is a a australian media multimedia physics something okay. amps it was run by uh derek muller anyway so he made that that was one of his projects in his phd but once he finished his phd and the funding was out it just stopped yeah it just uh, it's still there but it's not being updated um and it's kind of out of date and i think that was a real shame and it would have been awesome to have, you know, a little bit more thinking about how do you keep that going. Yeah. Uh, and there's many projects around that just stop um, after funding. Like most ARC centers of excellence, what happens when they run out of funding or the funding ends? It just stops. So it would be really cool to see that continued in a more sustainable way. So like the last year of it, the the the, the seven years of an ARC, you do your research and your you do your outputs, and then the last year of that, the extra year you think about how to continue that or something yeah exactly like i think um people are often in their either three-year research positions or these research centers so focused on meeting all their kpis Mm -hmm. and producing stuff that they don't really have a lot of time to step back and think about okay what's the legacy here how Mm -hmm. does it survive um and it's also very difficult to get say like a small amount of funding to make something survive because you often have to apply for like fellowship or mm-hmm. a huge grant or things there's not as much kind of like seed funding sort of things so i guess like filling in that gap where you know we can avoid inventing the wheel all the time and start to have some things that can last better would be cool maybe there's a new industry there the industry of uh, going to universities figuring out what projects are just about to stop and then yeah funding them for another year yeah <laughs> Maybe it needs a better name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like sure that. there's some uh, acronym we can put on that. Oh, man. Acronyms. You, yeah. I have all of the acronyms. I have SWISH, which is the uh, Survey of Weak Intensity Southern H1. It's actually not that contrived. I'm quite proud of that one. Um, and it has a basketball in its logo, of course. Good. Uh, CFOG, which is Studies with E. Rosita and flash of obscured galaxies. So I was like, you know, I had to use the and. But yeah, no, acronyms. We're very good at acronyms in astronomy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my favorite acronym in astronomy is the VLT, uh, the Very Large Telescope, and then the ELT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they're really running with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what, well, it's funny because I, I was about to say that this is an optical astronomer thing because there's also the GMT, the Giant Magellan Telescope, yeah. but actually we do have the VLA, the Very Large Array. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's not just an optical thing. <laughs> well, it's you know there's also the DISH, which is not an acronym, mm. um, and I kind of like that. It's just... It doesn't need any explanation. It's the dish. <laughs> It'd be difficult outside of Australia. I think that's a very Australian take on the dish. Fair enough. Because um, so, there's a few dishes worldwide. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, the, in the UK, they'd be like, yeah, the one in Manchester. No, yes. no, no, the one in Australia. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so now I'm going to ask you to ask a question of our next guest. Yeah, so I think that 
one of the things we do very well in science communication and outreach is you know trying to connect with say like kids and try to get them interested in science uh, give public talks that also engage with the communities that are already kind of on board with science and certainly like when I worked at Sydney Observatory we would have all kinds of audiences but a lot of the times you're already talking to people that were engaged with science mm. it's very rare for someone to come to Sydney Observatory or to do an, like come to an outreach event that doesn't already have some like small amount of science interest so my question for the next person is we talk about you know increasing the science literacy and if you look at all of the problems facing science like you know denial and questioning of experts and stuff it really comes from the fact that there's not enough funding to kind of like get the science message out there but then it's also about education it's about people realizing that science is part of their lives and is important to them so my question is how do we what kind of initiatives can we do to increase the science literacy of everybody mm. so like really make australian society and the world re-engage with science and say like this is part of who we are and it's part of our future uh, on a much wider scale the people that would never come to science talks or listen to a science podcast yeah, yeah that yeah, community yeah. of people i think is really important to try and reach um, I'm 100% on board. I deal with that question every day. <laughs> um, like right now, we're sitting in my office, but just there in my in the lab, I've got you know 50 something high school students who are doing uh, you know a workshop on physics and their syllabus. Uh, but that's an easy get because they're engaged. They're doing physics. They want to get good marks. Um, you know, we give talks to our friends at co at conferences. Um, we make podcasts where I know that no one who is not a scientist you know people who are not scientists won't listen to my podcast or people who don't have like an interest in science right yeah just, exactly there has to be yeah so yeah it's easy in a way to to speak to the echo chamber yeah you know science week there's another good great science talks and science events all over science week but it's mainly for people who are already engaged in science yeah yeah great question so I think there's there's a lot that can be done. I think there's been some really cool initiatives like Science Meets Art. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a really great thing because then you reach like a different community and suddenly there's science in their face. Like, whoa, science. Yeah. Uh, but another thing is like the guerrilla science initiatives where you have people. But it's hard, right? How do you make big change? And yeah, that's sure. the challenge there. Uh, so as a small humble brag, um, in a couple of months, I'm going to Splendor in the Grass. Great. To do a science talk in Very the cool. science tent at Splendor in the Grass. Uh, so it's not that those people, the people at that music festival are not engaged in science. It's just that they're not there for science. Yeah, they are not there really for great. science. So we're not going to get people going to Splendor in order to see something at the science tent. Yeah. They're there for Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> but, um, you know, if they walk past the science tent and they see something interesting, maybe they learn something. I don't yeah, know. Maybe I they get a really warm, cool. fuzzy feeling about science and that's, that's good enough. Yep. Anyway. Yeah, no, exactly. Those kind of things are really cool. I really like that question. Um, I have one final question. Mm -hmm. Did you bring back the, not not here, but do you have uh, the pudding with you? I do, actually. Yeah, yeah fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It has to be. <laughs> um, I, I brought it with me to Canberra, but actually it's visited most of the telescopes there. So yeah, it sure. kind of stayed in the bag. It's coming with me to China cool. uh, where I will... See, I will physically see the the huge telescope, the five. What is fast? It's like five hundred meter aperture spherical telescope or something. <laughs> fast. Okay, good. So fast, even though it's not like fast. It's actually <laughs> very very slow because it's so big. But um, but yeah, I think they're pretty protective of their radio quietness. So okay. I don't know if they'll let me even take a camera to the site. We'll have to see. But so that might need some context. So can you tell us about the pudding? Yeah, yeah. So this is. It's actually been a long time now. Um. In 2011, the Parkes Telescope celebrated its 50th anniversary, uh, and there were three students there. I was one of them, and I think, like, my impression is when you're a student surrounded by all these people that did all these discoveries and all this huge impact stuff, and you're just a student, you're like, oh, okay, you kind of become even more of a child than maybe you were to start with. Uh, and so anyway, <laughs> we were at this this grocery store, and I saw a Christmas pudding, and I was like a toy because it was 
two months before Christmas. So it was almost Christmas. And I just thought it was really funny because it had feet and it played music. <laughs> there was no face. You know, it was a very interesting design. And I found out like a couple of years later, actually, that the music it plays is Benny Hill. So that was a bit strange. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's like, and it became, we thought, okay, well, it's visited parks. Maybe its goal should be to visit as many telescopes around the world as it can. Uh, and I maintain that actually, because I took it with me to Liceo Observatory in Chile when I was there in March. So it's visited uh, one of my, my uh, friends at the VLA, Miller Goss. He took me to like lots of telescopes at the VLA. So yeah, I think it's been to more telescopes than the majority of astronomers these days. Yeah, great. So, and hopefully even more in the future. <laughs> and it, does the Cosmic Pudding have, like it's your Twitter account, basically, mm -hmm. isn't it? That was mostly because I couldn't think of a good name and the Cosmic Pudding wasn't using it. So I was like, I will become the Cosmic Pudding. Yeah, sure. So that's kind of started, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it has a YouTube channel that's very out of date. I'm very <laughs> backlogged in my uploads, so I need uh, to fix that. <laughs> can I link to the Cosmic Pudding's YouTube channel? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Yep. Um, I think probably if you Google Cosmic Pudding, it's probably one of the only results. Not a lot of people do a lot of thinking about Cosmic Pudding. Cosmic Pudding. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's yeah. an untapped market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, cool. Um, anything else? No, it's been great to talk to you. Yeah, so great. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, welcome back. So, because you were you were one of our first um, uh, live stem punk show. Yeah, that was so fun. People. I realized I have no musical musical talent at ever. Like, what was, <laughs> it was the the theremin. That oh my gosh, that was so hard. <laughs> yeah, I know the theremin. I broke the theremin the other day. We were doing an experiment with for students. Someone I was doing the thing with the theremin, and then someone else was doing a thing with a, a discharge, like a static discharge thing. Oh, yeah. And the static discharge jumped from the from the machine across a book that had metal lining in the cover, wow. and then into my elbow, and then zapped the theremin and broke the theremin. Wow! Yeah, and it hurt. Yeah, <laughs> so that's intense. Just, so we've just had to build. Um, a new theremin. Your brother, in fact, helped me build oh, nice. a new theremin. <laughs> cool. It's building um, lots of things. Yeah, that's good. So the theremin's coming back when we do when we do our next oh, science great. week thing. I love the theremin. It's just <laughs> it's just so annoying. It's. I mean, people can people are capable of using it in a non-annoying way. I'm just not one of those yeah, people. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I've managed to nail "Happy Birthday." I can play that, oh. so it's recognizable. Not good, but yeah, recognizable. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was good fun. Thanks, Thanks for having me. is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.